Well, I'm sure we've all heard of Bethesda Naval Hospital, where presidents traditionally go for medical attention. It's in an unincorporated area, six miles northwest of downtown DC, where the Naval Medical Center, the National Institutes of Health, the National Cancer Institute Research Center, and the National Library of Medicine are all located. The area got its name from a local church, the Bethesda Meeting House, which took its name from a pool in Jerusalem where healings were known to take place. And this morning we're going to look at one that was actually documented in the Gospel of John. John chapter 5. And after these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, a pool, which is called in Hebrew, Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And a certain man was there who had been 38 years in his sickness. After these things. After leaving Judea to avoid unnecessary competition with the disciples of John the Baptist and a premature confrontation with the Jewish authorities, after making an unplanned stop in Samaria to minister there for a couple of days and then going to Cana where he healed the son of a royal official from Capernaum, After these things and an unspecified interval of time, probably several months, Jesus decided to go up to Jerusalem for a feast of the Jews, most likely the Passover. His disciples, no doubt, accompanied him. On his way to the temple, Jesus stopped by a place called Bethesda, which means house of mercy. It consisted of five porticos built around a special pool located by the sheep. The translators added the word gate. It was probably a place where sheep entered or were gathered for sacrifice in the temple. The location has been pretty well established in the northwest corner of Jerusalem between the temple and the Via Dolorosa. Archaeologists have actually uncovered the remains of twin pools surrounded by five porticos or porches. And it was there on the five porticos of Bethesda that the sick, the blind, the lame, and the withered gathered in the hopes that they might be healed. Why there? Was it the site of a great medical institute? No, it was because of the pools, or at least one of them. 
It was believed that an angel stirred the water on occasion, and the first one in after the stirring would be made well. Now, at first glance, it may appear that the Bible is stating that an angel did, in fact, do this, especially if you're reading it from the King James Version. That would indeed be unusual angelic activity. The New American Standard, however, has the end of verse 3 and all of verse 4 in brackets, and the NIV has them in a footnote. The earliest manuscripts, those written before the 4th century, do not include these verses, even though most written after that time do. Apparently, they were added to the text by a scribe to explain why the people were there waiting for the water to be stirred. They believed an angel did it. Now, John doesn't say an angel did it. He will only note that the man was waiting for the waters to be stirred. Most likely, it was an intermittent spring or perhaps even a periodic thermal uh, activity like we see in, in Yellowstone that took place. And, and uh, they, they do have uh, mineral baths in uh, Jerusalem even today. Whatever the case, the people believed the waters had healing properties and attributed them to angelic activity. And John calls our attention to a certain man who was waiting there, a man who had been sick for 38 years. Now, we're not told what was wrong, but as we'll see, he couldn't get into the pool by himself. He was either too weak to move or paralyzed and unable to walk. Jesus will zero in on this man, perhaps because he was the one in the most helpless condition, and he will heal him. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? The sick man answered, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. And immediately the man became well and took up his pallet and began to walk. Jesus saw the man and knew he had been there for a long time. Not necessarily the whole 38 years he'd been sick, but a long time. How he knew, we're not told. He may have just assumed it because the area looked like a permanent encampment, kind of like a, a homeless area today. Or someone may have told him, or he may have just known. After all, he is God. However he knew it, when he saw him, Jesus asked him a question that seems a bit ridiculous. Do you wish to get well? Now, on the surface, that makes as much sense as going through a hospital asking patients if they want to get well. But maybe it's not quite as silly as it might appear. You know, he had been there a long time. Maybe he had grown content with his condition. 
He may have even found some advantages in being sick. Obviously, no one expected him to do anything except just lie there. Maybe he had simply been there so long that all hope was gone. Perhaps he was in such depths of despair and depression that he didn't even care anymore. We really don't know how he felt. The man simply responded that he didn't have anyone to put him into the pool after it was stirred. Someone else always beat him into the water. Maybe that's the reason Jesus picked him. Maybe he was the sickest and most helpless. And the least sick would probably be the first in and the easiest to claim a healing had taken place. So we don't know. But whatever his reason for selecting him, Jesus simply said to him, Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. The same thing he had said to the paralytic who was lowered through the hole in Peter's house in Capernaum. Jesus offered no promise of healing. There was no recitation of credentials, not even an appeal for faith in him. Simply a command. Arise, take up your pallet, and walk. And the man did so immediately. There were no hesitating, faulting steps, no gradual improvement. Immediately he became well, took up his bedroll, and began to walk. This is certainly not your typical faith healing. And we can't even be sure the man should be credited with even having faith. Whether his response was motivated by faith or simply the natural response to a miraculous healing, we don't know. Maybe he just did what Jesus said to do because he knew he could. He offered no expression of faith or gratitude. He just got up and started walking. Now, some suggest this really didn't happen, that the story is just an allegory. They suggest the man represents Israel and the five porticos, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament, that the law reveals sin but couldn't heal. They suggest the 38 years represent the years of wandering in the wilderness or centuries waiting for the Messiah and the stirring of waters, baptism. Now, that sounds very intellectual, but there's no evidence that it's true. This is not written as an allegory. It's written as fact. It actually happened to a real man in a real place. And the response certainly indicates it is true because what happened next is not all what one might expect. Now, it was a Sabbath on that day. Therefore, the Jews were saying to him who was cured, It is a Sabbath, and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Take up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your pallet and walk? But he who was healed did not know who it was. For Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd 
in that place. Can you believe it? A man, unable to walk, perhaps for 38 years, walking around, carrying the bed he had laid on in public for years. And the Jewish authorities were more concerned about his carrying the pallet on the Sabbath than his having been healed. They don't even mention it. Now, it is true. According to rabbinic teaching, it was not permissible to carry anything on the Sabbath. You know, God's law simply said to rest from your labors on the Sabbath, but they had defined what constituted labor. In fact, they had 39 classifications of work and one dealt with carrying a burden. They even went to ridiculous extremes detailing what you could and could not carry. According to the rabbis, it was unlawful to carry a needle in your robe or to wear a brooch. They even argued about wearing false teeth or a wooden leg on the Sabbath. And believe it or not, it was a capital offense to carry a load on the Sabbath. The, the, the rabbis had written, if anyone carries anything from a public place to a private house on the Sabbath intentionally, he is punishable by death by stoning. The charge they were laying on this man was serious. It wasn't just a passing comment. His response is interesting. He said he was simply following the orders of the one who had healed him. Now, maybe he was assuming they would respect the authority of a man who could heal. Or maybe he was simply saying, hey, it's not my fault. He told me to do it. We can't be sure. But he doesn't take responsibility for his action. And he does blame Jesus for what he was doing, even though he didn't know it was Jesus who had healed him. When they asked him who did it, he said he didn't know. And he couldn't even point him out because Jesus had slipped away. You know, I find it very interesting that this man was healed without even knowing the name of the man who healed him. Obviously, he didn't have faith in who Jesus was. He was just a man who happened to be at the right place at the right time, or so it would seem. He apparently had nothing to do with it. There was no special merit in the man, no abundance of faith. In fact, no faith at all. There's no reason we can discern that he was chosen to be healed and the rest left in their sickness. It reminds us again of the sovereignty of God. He can do whatever he pleases, and he owes us no explanation for his actions. If he chooses to heal someone else and chooses not to heal us, it's not our place to ask why or cry, no fair. He owes us nothing. And instead of trying to figure out why God has chosen to bless someone in a way he hasn't chosen to bless us, we should merely rejoice in the fact that God has blessed someone. We should also remember that he has promised 
to bless us abundantly and will do so in the future. Just last week, Anna painted this for me to hang on the wall in my office. Whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. What a great, great promise. Now, even if we feel that others have been blessed more in this life than we have, we know the blessings of our eternal home will more than make up for any perceived shortage of blessings on earth. But the account doesn't end there. Jesus took it further by hunting the man down and giving him a warning that we can learn from as well. Let's check out that warning. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse may befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. It would appear that Jesus went looking for the man. John says Jesus found him in the temple. He went looking for him, apparently to impress upon him the significance of his healing. There was a lesson to be learned from what had happened, and this man had apparently learned nothing. He didn't even know who had healed him. So Jesus called his attention to the fact that he had been healed and then said, Do not sin anymore, so nothing worse may befall you. Now, the Jews believed sickness was the result of sin, not in the general sense of sickness being a consequence of sin in the world, but in the specific sense that if you were sick, some sin in your life or the life of someone else caused it. Some interpreters, therefore, see in Jesus' statement a warning that since this man's sickness had been caused by some sin in his life 38 years earlier, he should be careful not to sin again, or he'd get another sickness worse than the first. But Jesus didn't say that. He simply said if he didn't repent, quit sinning, something worse would happen to him. That could very well be a reference to the spiritual consequences of sin. And they are indeed much worse than physical sickness. In fact, physical suffering can even be to our benefit. It calls to our attention the spiritual consequences of sin. And the physical pain and heartache and suffering and death we find in this world is the consequence of sin in the world. It's not the will of God. Suffering is the consequence of man's rebellion against the will of God. And Jesus came to deal with that rebellion. He didn't come to earth to heal all the sick people he could find. He came to show us that through him, we can be made whole eternally. 
but he does heal physically on occasion to remind us that he is the one who can heal us spiritually, and he is the only one who can do so. When the man discovered who it was that had healed him, he went to the authorities and told them it was Jesus who had made him well. We can't tell if he went back to them to give Jesus credit in the hopes that they would believe in him or to pin the blame on Jesus for his breaking the law on the Sabbath. But he did know it was Jesus who had made him well. What about you this morning? Have you been made well by Jesus? If not physically, at least spiritually. You know, we pray often for physical healing, and sometimes we are healed. But it's the spiritual healing that will last. And he is the only one who can heal us of our spiritual diseases. And as we saw in this account of the man healed at Bethesda, our healing isn't done because we deserve it. It comes as a gift from the one who created us, who loves us, and who wants to spend eternity with us. And as we also noted today, he sometimes blesses us unexpectedly to get our attention and to give us a reason to put our trust in him. The man couldn't heal himself. It was only when Jesus came into his life that healing became possible. It took him 38 years to learn that without him, he could do nothing. I pray it won't take any of us that long. If you have not done so, I invite you to publicly acknowledge that you do understand that without him, you can do nothing to bring healing to your soul. We live in a world where there are a lot of counterfeit promises being made. That we can be made whole, that we can feel better about ourselves, that our heartache will disappear if we'll follow this routine or that routine. The bottom line is we'll never be healed spiritually. We'll never be healed in our heart, in our soul, without the only one who can do that. Jesus is the one who can heal us. Sometimes he does so physically. And as much as we pray for that, that's not the most important. The most important thing is he touches our heart. He forgives us our sin. He assures us that whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. Do you believe that? Do you? Nod or say yes or say amen. 
<laughs> do something. Whatever. I got a better idea. Read it with me. You've heard me say it a thousand times anyway. Whatever, come on, say it. Whatever we may have to go through now is less than nothing compared with the magnificent future God has planned for us. Whew. I pray you believe that. Because without him, you can do nothing.